music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast with me, Chris Hawkins. Blue Dot is finally back. And after an extraordinary return to Jodrell Bank this summer, we're excited to be able to share some of the many highlights of this year's Blue Dot 2022. Over coming months, you can enjoy full talks, panels and listening parties from Blue Dot, including headline speakers from our Mission Control Arena and intimate chats in our Notes Culture Tent. In this episode, you'll be hearing Helen Pankhurst in conversation with Laura Bates, the author and creator of Everyday Sexism. This talk was one of three hosted by Helen at Blue Dot 2022 as part of our Pankhurst Sessions afternoon. So it's my absolute privilege to introduce Laura Bates to you. Um, She's an English feminist writer, founded the Everyday Sexism Project website in April 2012. Her first book, Everyday Sexism, was published in 2014, and other publications include Men Who Hate Women in 2020 and Fix the System, Not the Women in 2022. There's a theme here. Um, How many of you have stuck with us for the whole three hours? Hands up if you've been here from the beginning. So thank you for those of you who've been here. And I think... um, what I was just talking to Laura about is that there's an interesting parallel with Natasha and her formation of the Women for Refugee Women as a, as a charity, as an initiative, and Laura's work with Everyday Sexism, and then also her work um, with her, her publications. So maybe starting us off, Laura, could you talk to us a bit about that journey, yeah. about how you started, how it's evolved in terms of the different things that you're involved in? Um, I'm a bit of an accidental activist, to be honest or I was at the very beginning um I was living in London and working as an actress and um turning up to auditions and being told to take my top off um and I'd fairly recently graduated from a university where a professor would wear a black armband every year to mark the day that women had been admitted to the college as a form of mourning um and I hadn't joined the dots Uh, At the time, I was in my early 20s and no one had ever talked to me about feminism, about the women's movement, about sexism, which didn't mean for a second that I hadn't experienced it. It meant that I didn't have the power and the knowledge to recognise it and to feel able to object when I did. What happened was that in early 2012, by sheer coincidence, I think a number of incidents happened very close together within the space of about a week. I was on my way home one day and a man started following me and he started quite aggressively sexually propositioning me, refusing to take no for an answer. And eventually when I asked him to leave me alone, said he was going to follow me home and then he'd always know where I lived and there was nothing I could do about it. And I ended up ducking into the supermarket and texting a male friend and asking him to come and meet me. And the man eventually sort of sloped away at that point. And I didn't tell anyone what had happened. I felt unsafe and I felt jumpy for the next few days, but it felt like one of those things that I'd been putting up with for so long. And a few nights later, I was on the bus on the way home quite late at night, chatting away on the phone to my mum and suddenly looked down and realised that the man next to me had his hand on my thigh and that he was moving it upwards and inwards between my legs. And I panicked and managed to stand up and managed to move away from him. And I blurted out what was happening because I was on the phone in a way I don't think I'd have been brave enough to do otherwise. I just said, Mum, I'm on the bus. This guy just groped me. And everybody on the bus heard. And everybody looked out the window. 
Not one person challenged him, stepped in, but even more than that, nobody so much as made eye contact with me. And it felt viscerally as if they were saying, we don't want to hear this. This is your thing. You deal with this. You shouldn't have said anything, which gave me such a sense of shame and embarrassment and confusion that I got off the bus at the next stop and ran the rest of the way home, never told anyone else what had happened. And a few days later, I was walking down the street and some men were unloading some scaffolding. And as I walked past their truck within about a metre of them, they started talking about parts of my body and things that they do to me in very explicit terms. And it was so normal. It was as if it didn't matter that I could hear them because that was what my body was there for. It was just the way things were. And it was that realization of the normalness of it all that really struck me because at the end of that week I was thinking about these three things and what hit me the most was that if they hadn't happened in the same week I wouldn't have been thinking about any one of them because it was so normal and it was the first time I ever questioned why why is this my life why have I become so accustomed and resigned to feeling angry scared frustrated embarrassed humiliated ashamed unsafe and I started talking to other women and asking them have you ever experienced anything like this thinking that a few of them would have a story to tell me yeah a few years ago this happened or once this happened to me and of course it was every woman I spoke to and it wasn't one story from a few years ago as well on on my way to meet you just now this happened every day at work this happens you know how long have you got and it was that crashing realization of the normality of it, of how common it was, of how severe it was. And I I was shocked and I could see it rolling out in front of me like a map. So I started trying to talk, talk about it. And when I used the word sexism, because it seemed to me that these were people being treated differently or discriminated against or abused because of their sex, this fierce resistance arose. And people told me sexism doesn't really exist anymore because women are equal, more or less. So the Everyday Sexism Project grew out of that dissonance between the real lives of women and girls and this glimpse into this hidden world that they were navigating every day and the social perception that this just wasn't really something that was happening anymore and it didn't need to be talked about and we were all making a fuss about nothing. It it was an effort to create a collective voice because so many of us for so long had been told, you're overreacting, you got the wrong end of the stick. I'm sure he didn't mean it like that. It didn't happen because you were a woman, that's just a coincidence. He probably meant it as a compliment. It was just a joke don't you need to lighten up smile darling you should like it I'd love it if someone said something like that to me or worse still well what were you wearing had you been drinking did you lead him on we are all conditioned from birth to expect and to accept these experiences and when we dare to speak up about them which is going against the grain we're told that we're wrong that we've imagined it or that it was our own fault And creating a sense of a collective voice was an attempt to shed that shame and that stigma and that blame. Because if 10,000 of us are all saying it, then we can't all have got the wrong end of the stick or brought it on ourselves. And it was an attempt to overcome this idea that sexism was no longer something we needed to be talking about. Thanks, Laura. That's so powerful. Um, It's 10 years. Yeah. So thoughts about... That, that, that time period, any change, any difference now? Would you do the same thing? What's, what are your reflections on it? That's a good question. I mean, I, it, it took on a life of its own in a way I never anticipated. And if I'd 
known then what 10 years would bring, I don't think I'd have believed the impact that sharing stories could have. Because I thought that maybe 50 people would share their stories and we'd put them on a website and I'd carry on with my life. And what happened instead was that over 200,000 stories poured in from people all over the world, the majority of them women and girls, and that those stories have gone on to change the world, not because of me, but because of those 200,000 courageous people speaking out together. They have put sexual consent on the curriculum. They have changed Facebook's global policy on rape and domestic violence content. They have retrained thousands of British transport police officers and completely transformed the way that sexual offences are dealt with on the transport network and increased the reporting of those offences by over 30%. They've they've inspired a recent footballing campaign that people might have seen about it being for men to stand up to this stuff. So I think what we have seen in the last decade that has been really positive change is a sense that we can speak out, that we can share our stories, that we will be listened to, that we'll support each other. And we've seen that through other brilliant initiatives as well, through Me Too and Everyone's Invited. I think that the conversation is in a very different place from where it was a decade ago. And that is a good thing. We are acknowledging it. We are recognising it. There is effort being made to tackle it across schools and businesses. But what hasn't changed, I think, are two things. The structural, systemic ways in which sexism and misogyny and other forms of prejudice remain baked into our society. And that's a real obstacle to tackling it. And the cultural norms that say that, you know, really this is what women are there for, that women are second-class citizens. I think those two obstacles remain and those are very difficult things to tackle. Thank you. Um, I'm going to keep opening it up to questions. So right throughout the hour, 40 minutes that we've got, um, I'll keep checking whether you've got any questions that you want to put to Laura. Um, otherwise, I'm going to start moving on to her latest book and or actually no, to one of the books before that. Um, but if there's anything on the ex, on the everyday sexism campaign itself, the website and the impact it's had over the 10 years, anybody wants to comment on, um, please do feel free. Just put your hands up. I'll keep checking to see whether there's anybody that wants to engage and share. Um, so moving on, I mean, the, one of the subsequent book was the um, Men Who Hate Women uh, book. Can you tell us a bit about how that evolved and your, yeah. your journey in that respect? I think it was recognising that there was a form of terrorism, and I don't use that word lightly, that wasn't being recognised as such at all that drove me to want to write that book. Um, I think that there is a form of extremism, um, a form of radicalisation and grooming that's targeting young men online, that's having a massive impact on our society and particularly on young boys, that is currently flying completely under the radar. And it was something I've been aware of for a long time. And, and any colleague I have working in this space online, and I'm sure you too, Helen, will have been aware of for a very long time, because within three weeks, of setting up the Everyday Sexism Project, I was receiving maybe 200 rape and death threats a day, and that's never gone away in the decades since. So I was aware of that undercurrent of vitriol, but there was an argument that we shouldn't give it the oxygen of publicity, which I was sympathetic to. What changed my mind and what led to that book was that I was working in schools. I visit about two schools a week, so I see thousands and thousands of young people. I work with young people every week all over the country, and there was a really dramatic uptick between perhaps 20, 
2017 and 2020, I would say, of young men coming to those sessions radicalized. So really believing that Me Too was a witch hunt against men, that the gender pay gap is a myth, that women everywhere are lying about rape, that men are the vast majority of survivors of domestic abuse, that innocent men's careers are being torn to shreds and and their lives ruined by vindictive women making up false allegations, that women shouldn't wear short skirts if they don't want to ask for it and so on. And what I realised was that it was, A, very difficult to have a conversation once you reach that point of radicalisation, but also that the impact on these young men's female peers was really stark. So I started researching these pockets of extremism online and these communities dedicated to hatred of women, to male supremacy. And what I learned was that they were much, much bigger than we recognise, that we're talking about communities in the tens of thousands, in the hundreds of thousands globally, in the tens of thousands in the UK, that they are having a massive impact on young people that's completely unidentified and unrecognised, and that they are spilling over into real life violence repeatedly, that over a hundred people in the last decade, the vast majority of them women, have been murdered or seriously injured by men actively, explicitly acting in the name of this form of extremism. So that very simply meets any international definition for terrorism, but because it's misogyny, because women are the survivors and because violence against the women is the backdrop of our daily lives, we really struggle to recognise it as a form of extremism. And, And the aim of that book was to try and bring out into the light something that was thriving in the shadows. Thank you. Um, and it's the link between that right wing um, ideology yes. and and the treatment of women and the fact that our society does not see that as terrorism that I think yeah. is so powerful in the way that you, you show that up. Um, any questions to Laura on any of the things you've heard so far? Yes, there's a question just there. And I'm hoping one of my wonderful helpers here... Hi, Laura. Um, Hi. What you said then really resonates with me. Like, I work in academia um, and I sit on our university's um, institutional level disciplinary panel. And we've had such a marked increase recently in cases that involve sexual violence mm-hmm. on campus. Um, and so my question, I guess, is I often have to read about them in great detail and it's very distressing. So how yeah. do you, like researching that book, how did you look after yourself and like care for your own mental well-being, I guess? That's a really lovely, good question. lovely question. Yeah, um, I think I think we all need to get better at allowing ourselves to take breaks and to recognise that we are vulnerable. I think that particularly because. Uh, we work in such a desperately underfunded sector and because working in sexual violence feels like an incredibly urgent and um, vital area. I think that the people who work in it can often feel like they aren't owed a break, that they should never, ever take their foot off the gas. And I think that that can lead to burnout and to bigger problems down the road. So I think partly recognising that rest and taking time to recuperate is really important. But also for me personally, the thing that has made more difference than anything else has been having a community of people working in a similar area who are friends, who I can bounce things off, let off steam with, talk to the talk to about it. Because there are often so few people who 
aware of this stuff, you know, trying to talk at the end of the work day about incels and people go, well, what's that kind of battery or something? And it's exhausting and it's difficult to explain. How do you say to, you know, the vast majority of people, well, during my research today for my book, I accidentally stumbled across a page a website that was just dedicated to men sharing fantasies about which pieces of furniture they would use to give me internal injuries with you can't talk to most people about that um so i think having other people who get it and who know and who are in the same boat is absolutely invaluable having a support network of colleagues made a big difference for me yeah Thank you, Laura. I hesitate to ask my question, but I'm going to piggyback on the last one. So you're talking about something that's deeply emotional and invokes anger. Okay, I'm going to pause for a minute because, you know, having dealt with some of those and seen my daughter deal with some of those experiences, um, the reaction, the first reaction is very often one of anger. Mm -hmm. So for those people who don't necessarily have the supportive network that you have, and given that it is such an emotional issue, how do we deal with something that is so um, deeply rooted in an angry response mm. in a rational way that gets through to the people who need to be, uh, who, who need to help make the change that we want to see. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. I think that one of the first things that creates a sense of catharsis, which can be healing to anger, is allowing ourselves to acknowledge the reality of what we've experienced. And I think that can be a quite a significant process. And it's something I write about in my new book, allowing ourselves to recognise our list of experiences and the impact they've had on us and the trauma that so many of us carry that goes completely unrecognised by society. I think that there is a uh, there is a school of thought that will argue that that is um, disempowering, that we're turning all women into victims and encouraging them to be wilting snowflakes. I feel very strongly that it's the opposite. I think that there is enormous power in acknowledging and reclaiming the reality of what has happened to us. There is power for me in recognising that I was sexually assaulted on the bus that night, although at the time I never would have used those words to describe it because no one had ever told me that that was what sexual assault was was that it wasn't normal for men to touch my body in places I didn't want them to without my consent so the first thing is reclaiming that anger and the reality I think there's also power in being angry because we're often taught as women that we shouldn't be angry we shouldn't take up space that it's unladylike that it's embarrassing that we're hormonal or hysterical black women in particular suffer from stereotypes around anger and the angry black woman and there are three brilliant very recent books about female rage which which I'd recommend for anyone who's feeling angry and wanting to harness it. One of them is called Rage Becomes Her, and it's by Soraya Shmali. Uh, one of them is called um, oh, Good and Mad, um, and I think that one's by Rebecca Traister, and one of them's by Brittany Cooper. And you'll have to look that one up because I can't remember the title. But there's been a lot of writing about this recently, which I think is really powerful and important. And I think that the third thing is how do we channel that into action? Because I think in order to help that anger to dissipate, we need to see change. And I think that frustrated anger, anger with nowhere to go, becomes kind of turned inwards and, and toxic. I think that channeling anger into collective action is the most powerful option we have to us. And I think there are a lot of brilliant feminist campaigns that we can put that anger behind and support. I think the Centre for Women's Justice campaign at the moment around calling for a statutory inquiry into police misogyny is a really powerful one. I think that the campaign Women for Refugee Women 
women are running around the creation of yet another detention centre for refugee women who've committed no crime, many of them survivors of sexual violence. That's another really, really powerful one. So I think there's a lot that we can do to channel that anger into hopefully taking action. Uh, Thanks, Laura. Before I go, there was somebody who had a question there. But just before I go on to that, you mentioned lists that are personal lists. Could you explain a bit more about that? It's in your last, in your Fix the System, not the women book. Yes, so I have this... Uh, theory that each of us has a list having heard so so many women's lists because very few people write a single everyday sexism project entry most people write one that is sort of through their lives one of the most moving things I ever received after creating the project was a, a, a typed um, like a typewriter typed letter from a woman in her 80s who said I have too many stories to tell but here are some highlights arranged by decade And I have that sense that if we go back in our minds through our lives, we are each trailing a list of experiences which is so varied, each of them unique to us, many of them mingled with homophobia, with transphobia, with racism, with ableism. And they are a mixture of the perhaps more serious things that spring immediately to mind when we think back through our lives, but also the little things, the things that we were taught to brush off or told not to make a fuss about that we may even have half buried because of other people's denial and dismissal, things that we were blamed for, things that we were told was okay, the the uncle that we were always forced to hug, even though we didn't want to, the teacher who told us that maths was a bit too hard for girls. Just it's only when we join the dots between those experiences, I think, that we can recognise the systemic impact that gender inequality has had on us personally. And I think it's quite transformative because if you look at our lives, there are so many things that we've been taught to blame ourselves for. I'm just not the kind of person who can negotiate for a pay rise. I just don't always feel that safe, you know, running outside. Um, I'm just not that good at keeping fit, whatever it is. I'm just not that comfortable talking about what I like in the bedroom. But when you look at the figures, when you realise that men are over twice as likely to have asked for a pay rise, when you realise that over a quarter of women have given up exercise altogether because harassment has been so bad, when you realise that um, around 86% of men climax during their last sexual encounter compared to just 60% of women, these are systemic issues. They're not personal foibles. And we've reached this point of being distracted from the systemic because we've been forced to focus instead on the personal. What are we doing wrong? What mistake did that silly woman make? Was she wearing a short skirt? Was she taking the wrong route? After Sabina Nessa's murder, the, one of the top trending searches on Google was what was Sabina Nessa wearing? After Sarah Everard's death, a police and crime commissioner said she shouldn't have submitted to the false arrest. We had police telling women in Clapham not to go out on their own at night as if it was their fault, as if that would make any difference. After Bobby Ann McLeod was murdered, the leader of her city council said women shouldn't be putting themselves in compromise positions. So we are trained by people in positions of authority to believe it is our fault, to believe it is women's fault and that women can fix this. And it means that we don't allow ourselves to have our lists because we believe that they are shameful and that we're to blame for them. But I think reclaiming them is a real act of defiance. So for all of you with your lists, because many of us will have those lists, that kind of collect the acknowledgement that it's there and the sense that we are a community together, it, uh, kind of 
understanding that and addressing that, I think, is really powerful. There was a question here, and then I think there's one at the back. Yep. Is it on? Thank you. I just kind of don't, didn't know how to follow that because my question was just reverting right back to the schools that you um, yeah. were attending. And I was just interested to understand when you were feeling and seeing and hearing what, what mm. these young people were saying or the kind of impact, what were the school's responses to those um, stories and that kind of knowledge that this existed in their environments as well it's really really varied and that's part of the reason why we need a statutory response because there are some schools and some individual teachers really trying so hard really aware really putting the time in to take a whole school approach and to tackle it and then there are other schools where there's enormous resistance to even acknowledge that there's a problem where you've got situations for example in one school I visited where a girl who had been coerced into sending naked photos of herself which had then been shared around the school she'd been slut shamed the boy involved had been held up as a hero the police punished the girl uh, sorry the school punished the girl but not the boy and a couple of young female teachers begged the school to let me come in and talk to them because the kids because they thought this was a huge issue and the senior leadership team said it would be far too divisive and it would be tantamount to reputational suicide and they needed to brush this under the carpet and no one should talk about it so these two young female teachers ended up scheduling a a lecture for the sixth form on driving safety and then smuggled me in (laughs) but um (laughs) But it was a really good example of just how poor the response can be. The same is absolutely true at universities. I don't know how many people remember the lads on the bus video that went viral a few years back. It was a Scottish university and it was a video of their hockey team on a public bus chanting about rape and miscarriage. And I went to speak at this university a few weeks later and three girls approached me after my talk and said, please, can you help us? And I said, why? And they said, we're the ones who took the video and put it on YouTube because we just wanted people to know what we're facing every day. But in the time since it went viral, the boys in the hockey team have faced no disciplinary action and each one of the three of us have been threatened with suspension for bringing the university into disrepute. So the response from schools and universities varies wildly. Um, very aware of schools who in the wake of the everyone's invited scandal have had often wealthy parents writing in saying don't you dare overreact to this don't tar all our boys with the same brush this is a witch hunt that there is real pushback um and there is a crisis of sexual violence in our schools that is going unrecognised. We know that one rape per school day of term on average is reported to police as happening in UK schools. The statistics are mind-blowing, but we don't treat it as a national crisis. Of course it's a national crisis, but it's rarely talked about. Thanks, Laura. Um, people who are sitting on the edges, if you want to come here, there are a couple of um, seats just there and you could also come and sit in the front if that's useful. There was a question down at the back. A couple. Should we do both? Can we do both of those at the same time? Um, sorry if this is a repetition of the question before, but um, it could be argued that misogyny is learnt quite young. Mm. And if so... Would you recommend any um, educational um, educational things to provide to schools at what age and what kind of things? Um, if so, thank you. Uh, Clemory, and the other question down at the back. Is there another one? Is that the same one? It's the same one. The same question. Okay. okay. 
Yes, definitely. It's definitely learned really young. I think at the moment schools tackle it way too late. I think it's because there is this really mistaken idea that we can't talk about it young. You've got this kind of prudish panic of you can't talk about this stuff to five-year-olds because you can't talk to them about sex at that age. But nobody goes, when you teach a two-year-old kid going into nursery, you don't hit the other kids. You can't talk to them about violence, you know? So of course, at the age of two, we can be teaching children, this is your body and you get to decide what happens to your body and other people choose what happens to their body. Those basic building blocks of consent from such a young age, we can be starting to support them within our families. You know, how do you want to say goodbye to grandpa? Do you want to give a high five? Do you want to give them a hug? Do you want to wave? Instead of being forced, little girls learning from such a young age that their bodies are really not their own. In terms of school resources, there is so much out there that's so brilliant. I'd really recommend uh, Beyond Equality, which is um, an organisation that trains young men to go into schools and talk to boys about these issues. And it's really effective because of that kind of peer modelling approach and that sense of feeling like they're on their side and that kind of thing. Um, I've worked really really hard on getting this stuff on the curriculum because when the Everyday Sexism Project started, it wasn't on the national curriculum that kids had to be taught anything about consent, about healthy relationships. Um, After a huge amount of campaigning, not only from us, but other organisations as well, um, it finally has just come onto the curriculum and worked with the Department of Education and what that should look like. So it includes gender stereotypes and healthy relationships and online pornography and LGBTQ rights and relationships. So Change is happening and the change is positive, but there's still a long way to go, I think. Okay, I'm going to ask uh, one question and then open it up again. So, isolated incidents, tell us more. It's mad, isn't it? It's absolutely mad. Again and again and again, that phrase is used. These are isolated incidents. Um, Police assure women that there isn't any threat. This is just an isolated incident. It is literally the opposite. The opposite of an isolated incident is a pattern. One woman every three days is murdered by a man in the UK, over two women a week, murdered by a current or former partner. 1.6 million women experience domestic abuse every year. Over 85,000 women are raped every year. And half a million sexually assaulted. The notion that there are no connections, that we don't join the dots is absolutely devastating. And it comes, I think, from this this obsessive focus on individual women, on individual victims, and either blaming them or elevating them. I think that it was so extraordinarily telling that the narrative we saw in the press after Sarah Everard's death and after Ashling Murthy's death was she was just walking home. She was just going for a run. She did all the right things. Those were the things that trended around the world. And look, I understand why. I know that those those were outpourings of grief and I totally understand where they came from. But taken to their logical conclusion, what we were saying was these cases were tragedies because these women weren't asking for it. This was a tragedy because she was just going for a run. And the implication is that had she been out at two o'clock in the morning wearing a short skirt, doing the things that weren't all the right things, supposedly, had she been meeting someone who was going to pay her for sex, had she been on drugs it would have been that little bit more understandable. We are prepared to start from the point of accepting that women should be responsible for their own safety and that male violence is an inevitability within our society. And I think for me, that's why we can't recognise this as a public health crisis of male violence. That's why we use the term 
women's violence against women. That's why we use this term isolated incidents. And it's also because we're not able to join the dots when we can't see all the dots. And the dots that are shown to us in society are very specific ones. We hear about the high profile cases of usually privileged, very often white, very attractive middle class women. We don't hear the stories of the women who died the day before and the day after Sarah Everard. Women were murdered on those days too, but I bet nobody can tell me their names. We don't hear the cases of the older women and the disabled women who are murdered in their own homes during lockdown, for example, when men were given four-year jail terms for murdering their wives because they snapped after lockdown was very stressful for them. We don't hear about the cases of black women like Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, whose names really only came into the public consciousness after Sarah Everard's death almost a year later. And when we don't talk about most cases, just a few, when we pick out these perfect victims to mourn, we're suggesting that this is very rare and it isn't. We're suggesting that these are aberrations, that they come out of nowhere and they aren't. And that's also true when we look at the men who are committing these crimes. They are not monsters and beasts and aberrations. They are part of a society in which this is normalised and in which this particular form of masculinity is even praised and encouraged. When Wayne Cousins murdered Sarah Everard, we were told that he was a bad apple. That was literally the phrase that was used. But the reality was that in the four years alone to 2020, over 2,000 Met Police officers were accused of sexual misconduct. The reality is that the officers who took photos of the dead bodies of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman shared them in a WhatsApp group with 41 other colleagues. The reality is that men outnumber women two to one in the Met Police and only one in 18 Met Police officers accused of sexual assault is ever subject to formal action. And over half of officers who are found guilty of sexual assault keep their jobs. So none of these are isolated incidents. None of these are one-offs. Wayne Cousins wasn't an aberration nobody could have seen coming. He was nicknamed the rapist by his own colleagues. So I think we have to recognise this. We can't keep seeing these as isolated incidents. We can't accept that narrative because if we accept that, then it's to say no one could see it coming and women have to try and keep themselves safe. When really the opposite is true, we should all see it coming and we should recognise that women are not the ones that need to change to fix it. So please, when you see that it's the uh, police um, saying it was an isolated incident, I hope you hold on to that fact that it isn't an isolated incident. It's not an isolated incident because we keep hearing that. Also, so just before I go to that uh, thing, that uh, question, um, one bad apple, who knows the end of that saying? That's right. Exactly. Did everybody, does everybody know that? Okay, a bit louder. Can we have the answer? One bad apple rots the whole barrel. Yeah. So one bad apple rots the whole barrel. And yet we were hearing, oh, it's just one bad apple. We were not hearing the full story. And it is the full story that is the problem. Yeah. Um, Somebody had a question just there. Okay. um, I'm going to have to caveat this with not all men. (laughs) But why do men hate women so much? I think we live in a society that creates assumptions about men and women from such a young age that we don't even know that we are carrying them. Um, And I think it is absolutely true that it's not all men. I think there's a critical mass of men 
who would never dream of behaving in this way themselves, but also don't necessarily know that it's happening because they're much less likely to experience it. And so it's those men who I think give me hope and excitement because I think if we can tell them, like I think once they know, they can become part of the solution. But I don't think that the vitriol against women um, is happening. It certainly isn't natural. Boys are not born with it. But I think it is happening everywhere. I think it's happening from the age of, of 18 months when they're given vests that say future superhero for boys and I hate my thighs for girls. It's when they're in the toy aisle and the chemistry set is on a shelf that says boys toys and under girls toys you've got cleaning and makeup toys. It's walking down the supermarket aisle with their parents and seeing the magazine split into men's and women's interests and under women you've got cooking and diet and celebrities and under men you've got The Economist and the National Geographic and the New Statesman. Boys, well, all of us receive messages from such young ages about who we are, about who's superior, about who is entitled to power in our society. And of course, this is not just something that pertains to gender, but also to race and ethnicity, to sexuality, to disability. And that messaging is very hard to offset because it is so all-encompassing. But there is also a... a deliberate and specific targeted backlash that has been aided and bettered by algorithms and by social media in just the last few years that is putting these ideas on steroids. So, for example, 27% of American men now say that they would not hold a one-to-one -one meeting on their own with a woman in the workplace. So convinced are they that women and false allegations of sexual violence are so rife that it isn't safe to be alone with a woman. These ideas that we think of as extreme and niche and minority ideas are in reality terrifyingly mainstream. The most recent vice president of the United States wouldn't have dinner alone with a woman who wasn't his wife, Mike Pence. So the reality is that these ideas, even at their most extreme form, are really ingrained in our society. Every year the British Attitude Survey asks people if they think women were to blame for being raped if they were drunk or if they'd been flirting. And every year amongst the general population, about a third of people think that a woman was to blame if she'd been flirting and a quarter think she was to blame if she'd been drinking. And people often say, but these are the views of dinosaurs. You know, if we're patient, they'll die out. The younger generation knows so much better. But every year they actually disaggregate those statistics by age. And every year, the youngest age group that they study, I think it's 18 to 25, those numbers spike. So we can't believe that this is something that's going away on its own if we just sit back and do nothing. We have to recognise that there is a deliberate and concerted radicalisation campaign happening and we have to offer set it with education um so i'm from the u.s and um recent recently with um the supreme court ruling yeah. uh it's really hard for a lot of american women to feel like they're protected so what would you have to say to a system that's actively saying we don't care about your safety or your yeah. reproductive health i think okay. thank you uh, oh, Laura, let's take the other two at the same time if you don't mind uh i think one at the back there and one in the middle educational um, institutes like Rose Bruford and all of that taking on feet and social change and making sure that people can stand up and take in these courses. Okay. Thank you. Hi, and sorry, I think you've kind of half answered it, but how do you engage with men in various different circles within your mm -hmm. being, like closest, yeah. farthest away? How do you engage 
with those people to make people understand because sometimes you just get a blank wall. Totally. Um, I think that's probably the most common question I'm asked and it's also the most heartbreaking um, that so many of us are facing these attitudes in men that we know, often men that we love, men who are members of our own families. Um, I think there's a lot of different answers to that question. The first answer is that we shouldn't be the ones bearing the burden of this work. I think that if each of us knows men like that, then it means that there are men in our lives who know those men too. And it's brilliant that there are so many men here today. It's brilliant that there are so many men who are saying, you know, I want to be an ally. I want to be part of this fight. What can I do? And the answer, I think, is that that is the perhaps single most important role that men can take on is having those conversations with other men, having those difficult conversations, uh, bringing up these conversations in masculine spaces, starting these conversations. And I know, I know they're difficult conversations to start and don't say it's an easy thing to do, but if it's difficult for you to talk about, imagine how hard it is for us to live it. So I think the first thing is that the burden of it shouldn't be on you. Other men in your social circle should be taking some of that slack. Another thing I think is that those conversations don't have to be one-off, huge, terrifying sort of high-stakes chats. It might be little and often. It might be bringing it up over and over again. It might be pointing things out as you experience them or within your environment that can help over time. Because when you have a big conversation about this, often there can be a defensiveness that's invoked and a kind of knee-jerk backing off. So little and often can be useful for those conversations as well. I think education, yes, plays such a vital role, Absolutely. And in a way, it kind of fits in with that question, because if we were having these conversations in schools and universities and colleges, it would support the way that we're having them in our own homes as well. At the moment, I think women often feel so isolated because they're the first person that's ever brought this stuff up. So it's so important there. And in terms of institutional misogyny and inequality, it, it's devastating, isn't it? It's I think that all of us feel utterly devastated by what's happened with Roe v. Wade. But I also think it is clearly the result of a Supreme Court, one member of which has been accused of serious sexual violence, appointed to that court by a president who had himself been accused of sexual assault by dozens of women, elected by two, yes, quite right, elected by uh, an electorate after he openly talked about sexually assaulting women. And what it tells us is that if we have a society in which the structures of power and the levers of power are accessible by only very privileged white men, they will use that power to further their own continuation of patriarchal control. And I think that we're seeing it here as well. We live in a country where 56 of our MPs are currently under investigation for sexual misconduct conduct. It's almost a tenth of all our MPs, uh, where a man has been elevated to prime minister after telling us that we should vote for him to make your wife's breasts grow bigger, that if a woman tells you something you don't like in the workplace, you should pat her on the bottom and send her on her way. So I think it is a very a horrifically clear example of how power structures replicate inequality when they're controlled by privileged members of society. The question of how we tackle it, I think, is a tricky one. And I think there are two ways to do it. You either dismantle those power structures through pressure and through a vision of what a completely different society might look like. And that takes collective action and it takes protest and campaigning. Or you try to change what the makeup of those power structures look like by supporting people from a whole diverse variety of different backgrounds to find accessible ways into power. And I think for me, doing both is the way to, to try and affect change. 
I think the last thing I want to say is that it is possible to feel hope and despair at the same time. I think that at the moment, a lot of us feel very despairing. I think that the news has been an onslaught of, of despair, really, for women in particular over the last two and a half years. And it really has been case after case after case. When I was writing the book, I couldn't write it fast enough to keep up with the women who were dying. And I think that there can be a sense of nothing is changing. Nothing has ever changed. It feels like we're not getting anywhere. Is this ever going to end? But I think it is really important to recognise that whilst it is right to despair at the state of things and it is right to grieve and to feel desperate sadness for the deaths and the, the stories that we're hearing, it is also possible to hold hope alongside that. I think we have to. I don't think there is any other choice because I think not to feel hope is to to give in, to give up. And I think that we owe it to our daughters and to ourselves to believe that this can change, that things have changed, that we have come so far. And I think if anybody is evidence of that, you know, sitting next to me, the work that Helen has done over decades, the work that her family did over the decades before has seen change, such incredible change. We have made so much progress Progress. But I think sometimes people think that that just happens over time, that if you sit back and you're patient, that change will come instead of recognising that it is because of the work of incredible tireless campaigners like this woman next to me, that that change has happened. And that's why we can't give up. It's why we have to stay hopeful. We have to keep fighting. And we have to recognise that, you know, if there is one positive of the fact that tens of thousands of girls have shared their stories of sexual violence at school in the last year, year it's the fact that those girls have felt that they could speak up it's the fact that those girls have had enough and they are saying no more enough is enough and that gives me enormous hope for the future so I know that things are really tough right now and it's easy to feel despair but I promise that we will all keep on fighting and I promise that things will continue to change Thanks, everybody. I think that point about hope is the common thread, in a way, between the three speakers that we've had. Um, it lies with you as well, all of you. It lies with the activism of individuals. That's how change happens. So remember this conversation. Keep engaged. Keep active. And um, all the best and enjoy this wonderful weather and wonderful place. And once again, many thanks to our wonderful Laura Bates. You've been listening to the Blue Dot podcast, looking back at highlights of Blue Dot 2022. Blue Dot returns to Jodrell Bank from the 20th to the 23rd of July 2023 with early bird weekend tickets on sale now at discoverthebluedot.com. Blue Dot.